You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. This week, we look at the population exodus from New York, what's luring people away, and what that means for the tax base. We'll also dive into the latest health warning from the Surgeon General. He says social media may be hazardous to your child's health. And we'll get a behind-the-scenes look at how paparazzi are falling victim to modern times. But we begin with electric vehicles and the promise of a cleaner planet. President Biden's administration last fall awarded nearly $3 billion in grants to build and expand domestic manufacturing of batteries for electric vehicles in a dozen states. The United States is making funding available under the Defense Production Act to incentivize American and Canadian companies to responsibly mine and process critical minerals needed for electric vehicles and stationary storage batteries. While EVs can play a role in reducing emissions, it is just a start and not nearly enough on its own. Joining us now is a Bloomberg Opinion Editor Romesh Ratnazar. Romesh, slowing or maybe pausing climate change likely will take more than just switching to electric vehicles, but it would at a minimum anyway require widespread adoption of EVs, and that hasn't happened yet either. So talk us through this. What has to happen for this to get any traction? Yeah, I mean, I think the um, goal of electrifying transportation, uh, that is um, getting people out of gas-powered cars and into electric vehicles, uh, which are zero-emission carbon-neutral vehicles, um, you know, is a goal that uh, is necessary to achieve if the world is going to um, hit the climate targets that uh, we've set out for ourselves um, to, uh, you know, mitigate the worst effects of climate change. Um, and the question is really how to go about doing that um, in a way that's um, uh, efficient, cost-effective, um, and also also is actually going to achieve the goals that um, we have set out. And um, the way in which uh, the U.S. and, and uh, some other countries are going about it um, is, uh, is not likely to meet those uh, targets if we continue on the course that we are on. Um, and there are a variety of reasons for that. But um, what we believe uh, needs to be done is uh, a, to take a look at how these policies are working out, how the policies aimed at promoting EVs are, are working out, and um, what more has to happen um, in order for for them to actually achieve what they uh, are meant to achieve. I want to get into that a little bit. Uh, one of those policies is the government really juicing demand for EVs thanks to subsidies. You know this. Uh, but how sustainable is that? Those subsidies can't go on forever. Yeah, I mean, politically, they are unlikely to go on forever. We're already seeing, um, um, you know, significant um, backlash uh, against them. If, if you could imagine, if um, the Republican Party uh, gains control of, of both houses of Congress and the presidency, um, you know, a lot of the subsidies that are in place today may well be rolled back. Uh, even if they're in place, um, they are enormously expensive um, and they are not necessarily doing anything to reduce carbon emissions um, because 
what we are seeing is that by and large, uh, people are buying EVs, but they're not necessarily replacing their existing vehicles with EVs. EVs tend to be a secondary car or a, a tertiary or second or third car. So people are buying EVs and they're driving them on the weekends or they're uh, uh, still using their gas powered cars for, for long trips and the EVs maybe um, to do uh, short errands around town. Um, in other words, you're not removing dirty cars from the roads. You're just adding uh, newer EVs uh, on top of the existing fleet. Um, and so the net effect on the climate is not nearly what uh, a lot of advocates would hope. You touched on something right there. I want to get into a little bit, um, a, a bit of a curveball, if you'll indulge me, that people often use the EVs as their second car to run errands around town and use the gas powered vehicle to do maybe a long trip. I myself have been in the market for a new car and an EV just won't work because I do a lot of interstate travel and they don't have the infrastructure that I'm looking for and I don't know that they can take me as far as I need to go on a single tank or on a single charge. So tell me uh, how you would reassure me and convince me to buy an EV as a primary vehicle if that infrastructure isn't there. Well, I think that's, I think that's hard and I think that's why we're seeing um, uh, the demand for EVs, while it has certainly increased um, uh, considerably over the last uh, few years, um, has not reached a point, a threshold where, um, you know, you're seeing, you know, kind of massive uh, numbers of people in the average car buyer saying, I'm going to, you know, get rid of, of my fuel efficient um, uh, vehicle that I'm driving now and, um, and trade it in for an EV when, uh, as you said, the charging infrastructure hasn't been built out in a lot of places. Um, it's hard to do uh, long haul trips um, with EVs. And so, you know, I think, again, the subsidies and the tax credits, which are sort of the centerpiece of the EV promotion um, policies that um, uh, the government has been pr pushing, um, are really only one piece of the puzzle. And in, in order to sort of reach and hit the targets and, and have the the climate benefits that we are um, aiming for, a lot of other things have to be put in place. And, and that's a big one. The charging infrastructure has to be built out at a much bigger scale than what we've seen so far. Of course, you know, a lot of the money in the Inflation Reduction Act and the, the infrastructure bill um, passed uh, by Congress um, aim to try to expand those uh, th that infrastructure, but um, that's gonna take time. And again, uh, all of these things have to go right for the kind of goals that that people who uh, rightly uh, want to do something about climate change have in mind, um, I think the point is that EVs on their own uh, and just getting more people to buy EVs is not going to do the trick. A lot of other things have to happen as well. So what else is going to have to happen? What other X factors complicate that transition? And what else should be done? One of my questions for you is, is gas just not expensive enough? Does that need to be taxed? That's what a lot of economists have said for many years, that if you want to do this in an efficient way, if you want to actually make a dent in carbon emissions, you've got to put a tax on carbon. You have to make it expensive to choose a kind of gas guzzler over an EV. Um, and the only way to do that is to um, is to is to tax um, dirty fuels. And so, um, you know, if you were to do that, then I think you would start to see 
people making different choices. Um, and you would see the market reacting in a way that I think would, um, over time, uh, create a bigger market for, for uh, uh, EVs than currently exists. Um, and, uh, you know, this problem of people um, holding on to their, their dirty gas guzzlers um, longer than they otherwise would have because they can't afford an EV and um, the automakers are no longer incentivized to produce, uh, you know, cheaper fuel efficient cars. I think that would go away if you had, uh, you know, some sort of carbon pricing scheme. Um, you know, short of that, which, you know, politically, there are lots of obstacles to, uh, in front of a carbon tax. Um, you know, there are things that could be done, for instance, um, congestion pricing, which is um, something that um, a lot of European cities have introduced, but the U.S. has been slow to adopt, um, in which you just make it more expensive for folks to drive into densely populated, dense, dense urban areas. Um, you know, th that could be something uh, at a local level that could make an, a difference. Um, you know, but ultimately, I think the, the point uh, that we we're trying to drive at is that um, there should be a mix of technologies. Uh, we shouldn't be putting all of our chips on EVs as the only solution to climate change. Uh, and policymakers need to think about ways in which uh, we are promoting low carbon options, but not necessarily a specific technology that gets you to that low carbon uh, outcome. And um, the this current system as it's set up is putting all of our emphasis on EVs and we think that's a risky bet. Are they doing that because that's where the money is? I mean, there's an actual hunger and a drive, no pun intended, for EVs at this point. People are, are actually wanting to buy them, even if they are as a second car. Could that be why? Maybe it's low-hanging fruit? Yeah, I think there, there are a number of reasons. I mean, I think the auto industry has seen it as um, uh, an opportunity, especially the U.S. auto industry has seen it as an opportunity to... Uh, gain market share that they've lost to some of the foreign competitors. Um, you know, I, again, I think EVs are going to be a significant um, part of the mix going forward. And I think the goal should be for wider adoption of electric vehicles. Um, and I think the question is sort of, you know, how to get there, how quickly we have to move, we should be moving toward that goal. And whether there, in the, in the meantime, there are ways in which uh, the policymakers and the government can continue to to encourage and incentivize more climate conscious choices, but not take the risk of betting on EVs, which may or may not ultimately, um, you know, achieve the goals that we want them to. Bloomberg Opinion Editor Ramesh Ratnazar. And coming up, we're going to take a look at the population exodus in New York and what most of them have in common. You are listening to Bloomberg Opinion. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. New York has been losing people to other states for quite some time, but something new happened during the pandemic. Those who had left had higher incomes than those who stayed behind, a lot higher. Let's welcome in Justin Fox, a Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering business. He's going to set us straight on this. Justin, let's talk about this exodus of the wealthy. What's luring them away? 
I mean, during the pandemic, like in 2020, it wasn't so much what was luring them away as what was um, going on in New York. Mm -hmm. You know, New York City was the epicenter of the pandemic. And uh, the, you know, for good reason, maybe maybe it was overdone, but the sort of reaction to it as the pandemic eased was things were much stricter here in other places. And I think that was initially the main thing people driving away but also the fact that all the big businesses in new york went remote was like wow i'm sick of living in this tiny apartment with um laundry in the basement maybe i should go try somewhere else and so there was a lot that a lot of that going on but a lot happened pretty much all at once what's the outcome as new york continues to lose that population well i mean what you can see, so the, the the really detailed tax data that that says who left and what their incomes were, the most recent numbers we have for that date from 2021. So it's still, you know, that was still when we were kind of in pandemic mode here. Mm-hmm. And um, looking at the census population estimates since then, there's actually been this return of people to Manhattan but continuing loss in um, the outer boroughs and the suburbs, which is sort of an indication, at least Manhattan is the most affluent of the five boroughs of New York City. So the people coming back, we're probably getting some affluent people coming back. But the thing I decided to look at, because I had actually written about what's happened with federal income taxes a few weeks ago, and, and basically, over, over the course of the pandemic, when the stock markets were going crazy and house prices were going crazy, so was income tax revenue, um, bringing in tons of it, because that's just the way a progressive income tax system works, where if people with very high incomes are having their incomes jump up even more, which is what happens when you have an asset price boom, um, then that brings in more taxes than anybody really had penciled in. And so we had these huge... Um, gains in income tax revenue nationally, but even in New York, even though other statistics since then have shown that a lot of affluent people were leaving, so many people made so much money that it didn't make any difference. What's happened over the past year is federal income tax revenue has dropped a bunch, but I was looking at the New York state income tax revenue and it has dropped a lot more. So you're, it's sort of like the tide has gone out now and you can kind of see the real effect of who left and what, what impact that's going to have on the state's ability to pay for things. So that then is why the loss of the affluent taxpayer didn't really create problems during the height of the pandemic per se. Correct. Are we still seeing that loss? Is there still if not a hemorrhage, a trickle of a loss of the that level of taxpayer? I don't know. I mean, I, the, the one level I just don't know. This could because it, we could just be mostly seeing seeing a reflection of what happened I see. before. But sort of lagging I mean, data. Yeah, but I mean, there is this long-standing. Lots of people leave New York, and some of it is this perfectly healthy thing where, especially with the city, people come in when they're you know, either young professionals getting some high paying job or um, immigrants coming from overseas, often cramming into some tiny apartment with a bunch of other people and they succeed and do better. And some decide they want to stick around and some leave. And also you have single people moving in and then moving out when they have kids. So some level of that is not 
terrible and, and the city can sustain it. It's just sort of this question of whether it's reached this um, less sustainable point. And I, I think that right now, I don't know, like the New York City, I made the mistake of going shopping in Soho and it's insane. There were so many people. And 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 the issue in New York is actually there's, there's just about as much activity of every sort except um, people coming into the office. And there's less of that. And we are talking with Justin Fox, a Bloomberg opinion columnist, about the exodus of affluent taxpayers from New York. Now, uh, Justin, in your column on the Bloomberg Terminal, you link this exodus to the debt ceiling showdown on Capitol Hill. Help us connect the dots there. Well, just it's the fact that federal tax revenue fell so quickly that kind of sped up the reckoning and forced them to have to deal with this now. Whereas I think last year that people were predicting it wouldn't be till fall or so that they would run, that they would run out of money and um, federal income tax revenue fell so fast that the moment where Janet Yellen said she couldn't pay the bills moved up. And I mean, in, in New York, New York state, um, I, I don't know exactly what's going to happen now, but clearly the revenue is coming in way below projected. And at the state level, income taxes are sort of what pays the bills. For New York City, it's less of an issue. Income taxes only maybe a quarter of revenue or less. It's more property taxes, which is a more slow moving thing. And at least so far, there are issues with commercial real estate, but residential real estate in New York City is seems to be as in demand as ever. Or are we seeing this on a smaller scale in different areas or are are we able to even gauge that because New York is such an enormous part of the economy? There's a professor at Stanford Business School, um, Joshua Rao, Uh who's been looking at what happens in California at a really detailed level Mm -hmm. when there have been various things that have happened over the past few years. There was a referendum passed that raised taxes on people with very high incomes. Then there was the 2017 federal tax bill, which um, actually lowered almost everybody's taxes, but people in California and New York, on average, who are making more than a million dollars a year, it raised their federal taxes. Um, And so that created another incentive to leave. And then the pandemic created another. And what he what he showed is, you know, it's not very many people, but a much higher percentage of very, very high income people left right at those moments. So clearly, there there are some issues with uh, you know, taxes driving people out as well. And and anything, when something happens like the move to remote work, it just lowers one of the barriers that, that's there. Um, and, and that's got to be an issue for New York too. I haven't seen that level of really detailed research. And I, New York's um, income tax revenue, income tax rates don't go up quite as high as California's at the highest incomes. But yeah, that, that's one of the things that's going on. We're not talking about people then so much as we're talking about money, number one. Yeah. And number two, because of the sort of residual hangover um, uh, side effects of the pandemic, like remote work, it sounds like this is not something that's just going to resolve itself magically, like getting over the flu. This is maybe a different way of looking at things, a different way of, of being able to manage or uh, check the tax revenue based on what census says is happening as far as the the exodus and, and people coming into the city? Yeah, I mean, I think in New York is going to have to be creative and at some level actually recognize that having the highest taxes in the country, I mean, maybe New York City can manage it because New York City is unique and sure. special, but for elsewhere in the state, it's not 
may be the best policy. I mean, New York State has high level of services and that's good, but they're not always delivered super efficiently. And yeah, I mean, and it's not just New York. I think DC is having some of these issues as well. And it's it's hard to say because I, I think early in the pandemic, there was this, oh, the cities are over, everyone's gonna leave. And that's clearly not what's happening, but it's not like they're roaring, not like every bit of them is roaring back. What seems to be happening is residential neighborhoods in most big cities are doing pretty well, um, but commercial districts are still struggling. Justin Fox is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering business. And coming up on Bloomberg Opinion, the Surgeon General says social media could be bad for your kids' health. Much more on that just ahead. And don't forget, we're available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. This is Bloomberg Opinion. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. The U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy has issued a warning. Social media could be bad for your kids. My worry is that for many kids, not for all kids, but for many kids, social media is Uh, chipping away at their self-esteem. It's taking time away from activities that are critical for health and development, like sleep, but also in-person interaction and physical activity. But it's also exposing them to harmful content. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy's social media advisory serving as a roadmap for how to better understand the impact of platforms like TikTok, Instagram, and Snapchat on developing brains of adolescents. For more, let's talk with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Lisa Jarvis, who covers healthcare, biotech, and the pharmaceutical industry. I'm a bit surprised this warning hasn't been issued before, if not from the Surgeon General or from, from some healthcare professionals. Well, you know, Amy, it actually was. Um, I did a column a few weeks ago, and the American Psychological Association put out their own social media advisory. And of course, Surgeon General Vivek Murthy has said that he feels that kids under the age of 13 shouldn't be using social media at all. But yes, I think all of us are like, duh, this was needed. (laughs) And we're surprised it didn't happen earlier. Um, I think what they have done here is really compiled a list of recommendations and in a way open questions that we want answered about social media and 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 maybe that's what the holdup was was just defining what we do and don't know and need to know that's vast though what we don't know is it not it's so vast and i think that's really the concern right is that um there is a lot of conflicting information when we talk about social media and our harms for kids a lot of it we're talking about correlation not causation there's I mean, in in a way, because it's so new, we don't have enough out there and we don't have enough data. And so um, I think a lot of what this report is asking for is to set out a research agenda to make sure that we understand how this is affecting kids' brains and to really ask companies to participate in that in a way that they haven't been. Now, when the Surgeon General makes these sorts of suggestions, issues these warnings, um, like part of this, uh, he wants companies to add some scientific advisory boards to, to learn more about the impact of social media on kids' brains. How binding is that? 
you know, his recommendations aren't binding, but he does include a list of recommendations to policymakers about how to, you know, essentially enforce some of that with the social media companies. Yeah. We'll see where we go. To me, that's a better middle ground than um, saying we're going to ban TikTok, which probably isn't <laughs> going to happen, right? That's probably unconstitutional, um, as uh, some of my, one of my colleagues has written. Um, so I think trying to put some very realistic and maybe, uh, you know, like I said, middle ground recommendations would be a better way to try to get this information out of them. Remember when we were growing up and there was always some uproar over a suggestive lyrics in a song or a racy scene in a movie or violence on TV? Uh, how is social media different? No, that's such a good question. And I think about that all the time. I said in my column and I feel this deeply like am i having a tipper gore moment am i going overboard about <laughs> right. the, my worries yeah. about this um you know to me it's different because it is it just permeates every part of our day you know kids have their phones on they're not supposed to necessarily have them on at school but they do they're spending many hours a day interacting it's changing how they communicate with one another and it's changing their social the really the, their social fabric and their connectivity that's different than sort of passively sitting in front of a tv and worrying like oh they saw something violent are they going to be violent now i think to me that strikes me as a very different situation we are talking with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Lisa Jarvis about the Surgeon General's health warning about social media and its impact, especially on children and adolescents. Let's talk a little bit about where these warnings and suggestions go from here. Uh, you had mentioned that they're not necessarily binding, but if they can get the attention of lawmakers, maybe they can make some sort of rule or regulation that would be binding. How? What's the process and what sort of timeline are we looking at? probably slower than most of us who are parents would like. <laughs> you know, I have an 11 year old who still doesn't have a phone. I wish this was, had already happened. I guess my hope is that maybe we circumvent some of that and the companies decide they're going to participate. You know, we know they're collecting data on how kids use the apps. I spoke with um, a researcher who studies social media in adolescence, um, who's from the University of North Carolina. And you know, their social media companies are hiring people out of his lab <laughs> to likely study this internally. And so if they could be compelled without needing to pass laws to at least share some of that data, maybe we don't have to go that route. That's my hope. Maybe that's probably over <laughs> overly optimistic. But, um, you know, it does feel like um, the potential to pass laws that at least would say, here are some guardrails on some of the way a younger person uses an app, not allowing them to infinitely scroll, not having things like the like, but like button for someone who's under a certain age, because we know that that kind of reward system affects their brains differently than it does for adults. Those type of guardrails seem like things that they could get on board with, and then they can transition that user into adulthood. <laughs> So then maybe the response, since it's not a legally binding issue, um, that if companies run afoul of this or if it is it becomes obvious that there are issues maybe with a company and uh, and, and kids who are using their product, then maybe it would be more of a social response, for lack of a better word. I was trying not to say social, but maybe more more of a community uh, response to it, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think we as parents have to demand that companies do more to adapt the design of their products to be safer for kids, you know, um, and 
you know, I would be more willing to let my child have TikTok if I knew that it was a safer environment for her to be scrolling, you know? Um, so I do think that there has to be push from all sides. Um, but, um, you know, and I think the research will help too, because if we have clear evidence that it's causing harm, which right now there's signs of that, like scraps of data, but not, you know, sort of overwhelming data that says this causes harm. I think that would push the policy side if the companies don't do it themselves. What are we learning? What are researchers finding out about social media companies, the experts they hire, the data they gather? What are they figuring out from that? Well, you know, they're not sharing it with us, but I can say that this researcher at University of North Carolina, who I spoke to, um, came out with a study in January where he showed that 12-year-olds who habitually check social media have different distinct brain patterns from 12 year olds who don't now that's not a judgment good or bad we don't know kind of what that how that translates into who they become later but mm -hmm. it does show us that something's happening at this very vulnerable point of brain development we also know there is some um certainly a lot of anecdotes and starting to be some data around eating disorders in girls who are on social media because the algorithm just keeps feeding them the same messages you know and reinforcing those messages when they're looking at it um and then i think the other area is just kind of general mental health and suicidality. You know, uh, one of our colleagues in news had a very really striking and scary report about the way that social media can feed um, stories of suicide to kids who are already experiencing some, you know, mental health issues. And uh, the Surgeon General also called for more transparency from those companies. What did he mean by that and how did that resonate? I think, you know, transparency about who their users are, about what their data what data they're collecting because we we just don't know you know right now what data they're collecting more transparency about you know what are the experiments they're running because they probably are about how to direct different users in different directions i think all of that is important um important information as we think about you know what is and is not appropriate for kids and social media so what happens now where does this go <laughs> I mean, I hope that, you know, I think that's the that's the question, right? There's always this like, well, this report came out, it had a list of recommendations. I think there needs to be pressure from all sides, um, you know, parents, kids themselves. You know, I think kids themselves should be, and especially kids who may have aged up and experienced social media and now have hindsight to sort of ask questions about whether that was good or bad. Um, I think, you know, policymakers should be looking at this and saying, okay, maybe this is a more appropriate roadmap than saying we're going to try to ban TikTok in our state. You know, um, I, I think I think we all just have to keep applying pressure. Bloomberg opinion columnist Lisa Jarvis covers healthcare, biotech and the pharmaceutical industry. Celebrity photographers, paparazzi, are a victim of our modern times. And we've all heard about the car chase through the streets of Manhattan, how Prince Harry and Meghan tried to get away from photographers one evening while in New York City. But the incident isn't really as much about history repeating itself as it is a harbinger of how technology may be changing the nature of our jobs, all our jobs even the paparazzi. Here to explain is Bloomberg opinion columnist covering economics, Allison Schrager. Allison, welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us. How has technology essentially destroyed the economics of celebrity pictures? And those are your words, not mine. Well, yeah, when this all happened, everyone thought back to obviously the Princess Di tragedy. But um, 
market for celebrity pictures has really changed since then. So when I wrote my book, I ended up spending a couple of weeks hanging out with the New York paparazzi and going with them on uh, sort of stakeouts. And so they were telling me that pretty much around the Diana era, pretty much until about maybe 2008, which is what they call the gold rush era. That's uh-huh. actually their words, not mine. You would get so much money for just even a shot of a celebrity, you know, getting coffee. That was like the just like us, us weekly time. And that was when you'd get this huge premium. And this is when you also had all those car chases. You heard about them all the time. But then, you know, like what happened in a lot of industries, there were two forces. One, we had the Great Recession. So people stopped buying glossies. And also online, like they just had way more websites pushing celebrity pictures. And these websites just needed a higher volume of pictures, which you think would be good for the photographers, but it wasn't because they don't sell directly to the media websites. They they have these intermediaries, their photo agents who and they sell to the uh, they are the ones who have the relationships and sell to the magazines. So that industry, that middle tier consolidated into just a few players. So they had a lot more market power over the paparazzi. In the meantime, you they they're the buyers of the pictures wanted a higher volume. So they switched to a subscription model rather than paying per photo, which meant that the paparazzi now just get a fraction of the money from the subscription. And I was curious how they managed their risk. And um, one of the their primary way is that they form teams and where they share tips and they sort of stake out celebrities together to ensure they get the shot and then they share the money. But of course, getting an exclusive is a very has a very high premium. So there's always an incentive to cheat on your alliance. So they like have all this bad blood. So it's it's a very sort of contentious sort of environment because they all have these like long histories of cheating on each other. And I think I think what people don't get is particularly when celebrities are climbing that their food chain getting famous getting attention is really important often they tip off these photographers particularly when they're young and up and coming these guys are poor immigrants barely making not even making minimum wage largely make these celebrities and then somehow get vilified in the whole process so then where does it go from here we were talking earlier about how the automation process and the consolidation of that middle tier um, has really uh, cramped their style, so to speak, and cramped their industry. What what happens now? Are, are we going to see them go extinct? So what I found interesting is I said I talked about the risk they manage by forming alliances. Yes. That is obviously like kind of like diversification, mm. um, but like systematic risk in any industry. The only way that's a much harder risk to manage, and that's what they're facing. So a lot of them are actually having to leave the industry altogether. You always have new upstarts because it's fun. And, you know, there are these random big paydays where you do get a good shot, but there's certainly fewer of them. And that's why this car chase was so unusual for, you know, a picture of a celebrity back then. You could maybe get ten, twenty thousand dollars. Now you'll maybe get five. So I think there's just going to be fewer of them. We're probably going to just see more celebrity photos be more curated the way they want, like, you know, released on Instagram. And it'll probably just be less interesting. All right. Thank you, Allison. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Allison Traeger. And that does it for this week's Bloomberg Opinion. We are produced by Eric Molo. And you can find all of these columns on the Bloomberg Terminal. We're also available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Now, stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines are coming up. I'm Amy Morris. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg. 